Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Guillermo del Toro presents Don't Be Afraid of the Kronos. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One has two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Ron Perlman. That's supposed to be Spanish, but clearly isn't. And so we choose <laughs> the last minute, but I still have a Spanish name, Thomas. And I am a creature stalking in the corners telling you to join us. From what movie who knows there's so many of those yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> obviously and over there laughing in the corner um is our guest for the evening uh you might recognize her from the podcast sequels and also she's a writer for various places it is alejandra gonzalez alejandra welcome Ooh, thomas that was a good pronunciation donde esta la biblioteca donde esta el sanitario hi thank you guys for having me on i'm so excited i feel so honored to be on for this particular episode right of course whenever we have a guest come on we show them the list of topics that we have planned out and we say like what would really draw you to the show and this one was a big one i was i know you're a big fan of del toro i am but where did all that start for you where did it really start for your like fascination with this great filmmaker well i've always been a fan of horror but up until recently, it was never really a very diverse genre. And myself being a Latina, I I saw Pan's Labyrinth. You know, it felt good to like understand the language without having to read the subtitles. And I know that fairy tales and things like that are very much part of the Latino culture. So I felt like I can identify with his work. And so the more and more I delved into his work, the more and more I was like, oh my God, this was made specifically for me. He understands me. So I I don't know. I just really love him. And I love how he puts on for the Latinos and he never fails to mention that he's Latino. <laughs> and I really enjoy that. Yeah, there's a lot of pride in his uh, sort of original homeland. Like I loved hearing about him seeing everybody celebrating when he won for Shape of Water in his hometown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is great to see. But for me, it started with the entryway. I think a lot of people, American audiences, had was probably like the Hellboy movies, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, because those are the bigger, more mainstream stuff that he really came into at a certain point. I mean, there was Blade Two before that, obviously. But um, there's there's certain fascination there. Adam, what about you? What was your gateway to Del Toro? I honestly think it was Blade Two. I saw Mimic, but. Mimic had no real discernible style. This is like this something for who to watch for. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Blade 2 and then very quickly, like right after it's tried to find his other work, which there wasn't really a lot out, but I found Kronos. And then ever since then, like anything that came out of his, I just immediately went and saw. Yeah, he's probably one of my favorite directors working today easily. You know, <laughs> the whole... <laughs> premise of this show is to talk about one of his bad movies but technically and we'll talk about it later not really a bad movie 
of his. I mean, amongst the ones he's directed, yeah, I would agree with Adam. Like, the closest is probably Mimic, but that obviously had a yeah. lot of production issues that took it away from him. And even there's some cool stuff in Mimic at the same time. He's always, like, a fascinating director, even with, like, some of his lesser projects. Like, I'm not even the hugest fan of the first Hellboy, necessarily, because it feels like him a bit more restrained. And then, of course, Hellboy mm-hmm. 2 is like, oh, fuck it. Do whatever I want. Giant budget. I don't exactly. give a shit. But I'm not just... a real big Crimson Peak fan either. I do appreciate the uh, style and aesthetic of it. Oh, wow. I will say that... Um, so I hadn't seen... Oh, wait. Can we reveal the movies we're talking about today? Well, we might as Ooh. well, yes. Uh, at the end of our last episode, for those of you who might be new, we picked uh, two movies. One was a good movie. One was a bad movie from Del Toro's illustrious filmography. Uh, the good pick we have is Kronos from 1993, his first directorial effort. And the bad film is a movie he wrote and produced called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And uh, yes, but you said you hadn't seen? I hadn't seen. I had not seen. And the first thing I thought of was like definitely Crimson Peak because it's got that Victorian kind of like gothic element about it. But it did not <laughs> work out the same way Crimson Peak. Did, but apparently nobody liked Crimson Peak except for me. No, that's not true. Anytime I say I don't like Crimson Peak, people are like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? Well, direct me in their direction because I am going to start a, a club because I think Crimson Peak is, I mean, it is, this is going to be very bold. It is my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. <gasps> <laughs> I mean, I really dug Crimson Peak. If anything, the, my biggest sort of regret watching is just watching the whole time, like, Man, we could have gotten that Haunted Mansion movie, but this is the closest way we're going to get to that. Probably <laughs> running around, which is never great. <laughs> I I don't, I mean, there's definitely some weird stuff in that movie that I feel, like, uncomfortable <laughs> being like, oh, I loved everything about this movie. Oh, yeah, so the incest is the part yeah. you're here for. <laughs> <laughs> that would do it. It's, it's, it's bananas, but it's so gorgeous and, like, Gentle is one of my favorite filmmakers, so I do hold kind of like style and aesthetic above a lot of things. And I think that Crimson Peak is his most aesthetically pleasing movie, which is also debatable. But that's how I feel. So that's probably why I love it so much. Well, no, I mean, I, what I love about Del Toro just in general is that he's a guy who manages to balance aesthetic with genuine emotion quite well. Yes, I think it's very absolutely. clear, especially in our first feature, that like I think he does such a great job of like really keying in on the familiar relationships while also getting like the specific style for any movie quite right and it's it you can tell like there's a sync of touches like oh this is a del toro movie but it never feels like he's repeating himself necessarily right i completely agree and i thought the same thing upon this rewatch of chronos because like there's so much so much heart in there the way that there is in pan's labyrinth or even in you know don't be afraid but it doesn't ever feel like he's repeating the same story or the same emotion even, and I really, really appreciate that. Right, well, let's dig in then with uh, first our good feature, Kronos. In 1536, the alchemist Uberto Fulcanelli disembarked in Veracruz, Mexico. Fulcanelli was determined to perfect an invention which would provide him with the key to eternal life. He was to name it the Kronos device. Woohoo! <laughs> A vampire movie through and through. I mean, it's not like innovative to say that, but 
I wish it would have been a little bit more explicitly. Well, can it really be more explicitly like vampire? I don't think it could. Well, I, it, it's interesting to judge that with like Kronos, of course, came out December 3rd, 1993. Like I said, his first feature directorially, and he also wrote it, uh, was the highest budget movie from Mexico at the time it came out, $2 million in like 1993, which is pretty interesting. What I like about the movie, I agree, it isn't necessarily an out and out, like more typical vampire movie, but I find that more interesting because it's just more of like the fact that being an immortal vampire is this horrible curse, especially like becoming a vampire when you're like 60 years old would be a total. (laughs) God, what a drag. I always thought like becoming a vampire at 60 or as a kid would just be awful. I agree. But the thing is that, okay, so (laughs) a little background here. I'd write a column for talk films or wrote a column (laughs) for talk film society about vampires. And so I like to consider myself an expert on the vampire sub (laughs) sub genre. And what I loved about this is that he was kind of dealing with that at such an old age because it, made him regain that lust for life that isn't there at that age most of the time. And so I really liked seeing how they used vampirism as like a vehicle for that kind of excitement and like youth. It's interesting. Well, briefly, but at the same time, it's also a story about just like, oh, I get that huge sort of surge of energy, but at the same time, I'm addicted to this device that keeps me alive, which... Especially, like, realizing how much this is his first film, like, that whole Kronos device feels like Del Toro in an egg-sized nutshell. Like, mm-hmm. it's this clockwork thing that has a weird creature inside of it. You get kind of a sense of, like, oh, this is how it works, but also not really. You just get a shot, and it's just very plainly there. That's what I like about Del Toro, is he kind of just shows you blatantly how the thing works, except you don't really know how it works at the same time. So it's just like, yeah, there's a slug in here, and there's clockwork, you know, whatever. You know how this goes. Right, there's, like, no exhibition. And there's hardly ever any exhibition in any of his movies, which I love. Because, again, like, it stems from his imagination. And so, also, it gives our imagination a room to, like, kind of grow and explore. But I will say, I'm surprised that this was the good movie that you guys chose. Because I would have switched the two. That's very interesting. (laughs) Uh, But when we go to Adam, this was your choice. So, why don't you go into a bit of why you chose this one in particular? (laughs) <laughs> uh, one, because we've talked about my all-time favorite movie of his already on another show, which is The Devil's Backbone, and I didn't want to cover it again. And Pan's Labyrinth has been talked about to death. Shape of Water has been talked about enough. I mean, it did win the Academy Award, so I kind of wanted to make sure we got something you know, that maybe either A, people hadn't seen, but also to see exactly where he came from, because you can still see elements of this movie and his style in all of his works. Mm-hmm. And plus, to to go on kind of what you were saying earlier, uh, Allie, I do like that it is a vampire story, but it's very unconventional in the way, and that's why I like it a lot, too. You don't see him getting bit on the neck and, you know, all of a sudden become feeding from a vampire and then he becomes a vampire. None of that. And, you know, he gets the alabaster skin and all this. It's just so different to where he's almost like a ghoul. But I just, God, the lead actor. Oh, my God. Anything that guy's done with Del Toro, I'm like, I fucking love this guy. Right, Federico Lupi, who is oh, he's so good, dude. I thought you were talking about Ron Perlman for a second. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, (laughs) was named Angel for some reason. (laughs) What what the fuck? 
I just I picked it because it's not talked about, and that, that's kind of what I've been trying to go for lately, like uh, with our Quentin Tarantino episode and things like that. Everybody's got an opinion on most of his other movies, but you don't really hear this one discussed too much other than this is where he started from. No, I do agree with that completely. And also, like like Thomas mentioned, it does have that kind of tragic element as well, like to kind of mirror the ex- excitement and like lust for life he gets. It is tragic and there's like a payoff there. And I think that's like an interesting human emotion to kind of explore. Yeah, I agree. It's a really impressive like place to start your career. Yeah, that's the thing is watching Suspicion, I just feel like, oh man, this would be like the best film in any other like cult director's filmography like this could have easily been like a really great underrated cult movie that just inspired a bunch of like lesser movies to follow but it's such a great start for him in a way that's still it's lesser in terms of just like the actual scale of it but at the same Mm -hmm. time you do get so much of like we were talking about the recurring threads that happen with whether it's like his filmmaking style or his like themes that he always goes throughout these movies even stuff about like the catholicism imagery that's all throughout this I mean, the guy's name is Jesus, isn't it? Like, it's Jesus. Yeah. It's so subtle, I don't know what you're talking about, Allie. It's, I, I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I did something there. I was like... <laughs> Who's, Who's Jesus? I'm out of the loop. <laughs> that, what I like about it, yeah, his name's Jesus. It's really on the nose, but it never really feels like it's forced on you either. Where some people, they'll hit it right on the nose and be like, see what we did? Look what we did. Look what we did. Look what we did. Ah, that's why his name's Jesus. Ah, I never feel like he's doing that. Clearly, I thought it was super well done. (laughs) No, I I think especially what works about it is that he has this very kindly old man demeanor. It's almost like if Geppetto became some supernatural creature. It's like he has like a total Geppetto look and demeanor the whole time in a way that's so honestly like really endearing. Where it's just like, oh, he loves to tinker. You can tell he has this like fascination with these old antique stuff and... At the same time, like, this real connection with his granddaughter. I love that scene where Ron Perlman comes in. And he's just, like, showing them the splotches of his different noses and shit like that. What There's was that like, about? Like, was he was he trying to get a nose job or something? I never know. Well, right. Yeah, he's I trying to get a nose awesome. job. And I really noticed this, especially at this time, is whenever his um, abusive um, uncle hits him, it's always in the nose. So he has this no. clear insecurity about his nose because of a lot of that. Like, it's, it's always the case. Even, like, right before, like, his, you know, his uncle's dead and he's about to, like, get the inheritance, he is almost going to let them go free, but then the little granddaughter hits him in the nose, and that's what sparks all of this. It's an interesting sort of thread that gives that over-the-top character a bit more of, like, a tragedy. Hmm. I never even noticed that. And that's really on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is over. (laughs) But but, but how do we feel also about Ron Perlman being in here and being the one mostly English speaker? I really love him. I'm obsessed with him, actually. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm a huge Sons of Anarchy fan. And they did him dirty in that show. So I'm glad he at least has a solid career with Del Toro because I love him in everything he's in. Oh no, I agree. I'm a, I'm a huge Ron Perlman fan. I've been a Ron Perlman fan since beauty and the beast, the live action show from oh, back. In the no. Yeah. Cause I just loved the makeup. I'm like who the hell is this guy? And then I saw him without the makeup. I'm like, so is he just wearing a wig or, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I really, really like him. Even in the era Past episode when we talked about Alien Resurrection, I, I I quoted Ron Perlman's line in the beginning. I, I'm a real big fan of his, and uh, he just plays such a perfect sniveling scumbag in this movie. 
Like he is just. I love that he acts so big, but then it shows him his room. He's sleeping on a cot, like <laughs> like basically next to a boiler with like a bunch of newbie girls on the wall and stuff. Like he's still a teenager, basically. I, I love that whole scene where he's got like the intercom speaker. He's like, "You fucking piece of shit." Yes, Uncle. Yes. <laughs> I, that whole scene is just like a perfect encapsulation of like how Ron Perlman can play an asshole so comedically pitch perfect. And it's interesting, especially finding out that, like, he didn't know this was going to be a Spanish-language movie for the most part until he got to Mexico to shoot this movie. And well, it should have been his first clue, for God's sake. Well, yeah, like, I love there's an interview where he talks about this where he's just like, you know, I worked really hard to, like, after I found this out, to, like, do the Spanish right, and I went up to Del Toro to his room, and I just did, like, a huge bunch of my lines in Spanish to him, and Del Toro just sat there patiently, smiling like he does, and he was like, so... <laughs> How was it? It's like, oh, unusable. Terrible. You can't use any of this. Well, what are we going to do? Let's go eat. And they decided to have him speak English the whole movie. <laughs> I love that when Del Toro speaks English, all he does is swear, usually. It's the funniest thing. Yes. Have you ever heard an interview with him? All he does is cuss. He says, fucking cocksucker, nonstop. <laughs> no, I think Rob, Rob Perlman was a, was a really, really perfect choice for this role. It's crazy uh, because even with like the English in a movie that's mainly Spanish, it wasn't jarring or at all. Like I, I didn't feel like it was misplaced or something, which is a little weird. Cause it's actually extremely misplaced. Right. I only feel it's misplaced. There's a point when, um, the evil uncle is talking to Federer, Federico Lupi in English, which is like really bizarre. It's like, that guy doesn't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Why are you speaking to him in English? Yeah. I think that was maybe a way to show, like, that's how him and Ron Perlman can still communicate as well. Like, he does speak English. Like, that's the only thing I could think of, because there was no point to that. Like, <laughs> that guy should have literally, he should have gone, the uncle should have gone on this diatribe, and the guy should have been like, okay? Fantastic. No, I didn't bother me either. I agree with you. It never felt out of place to me at all. I don't know. I think that this kind of works really well with uh, Don't Be Afraid because it's like as a double feature because I saw them both back to back today because of the little girl and like the difference between the relationship with the little girl and Kronos and her grandfather and then the little girl and Don't Be Afraid and her father like I thought it was interesting how he did both so well and he, he loves children he loves children. Yeah, clearly. I, he loves the perspective, especially of children, which is so hard mm-hmm. to like get right for a lot of like adult filmmakers Absolutely. that do this, especially in horror movies where it's a lot of like, oh, you're facing a supernatural threat, and they never quite get the sort of quiet curiosity about a child, especially like I love the scene where he's trying to find the Kronos device and he can't find it, and she's stolen it and put it inside her little bunny like stuff yes and he confronts her and talks about like the whole thing about oh you know when your father was your age he did this with my cigarettes and he didn't we wouldn't change a lot but he knew it would catch my attention and now this is catching my attention again it's such a beautiful little scene that's like all the the huge genre elements are just really washed away for a very sincere moment that feels like it could be from an actual like father daughter in this case father granddaughter relationship I, like that's kind of what captivates me so much about his work is how he can tell a story from anybody's perspective. Because even in Chronos, like the perspectives do shift between like this young little girl and then like her kind of decrepit grandfather, and it it's pretty seamless. And so like 
he does Pan's Labyrinth where we're getting the perspective of the little girl. And then he does something like Shape of Water where it's like he does both so well and it's it, i don't think everybody can do that right in lesser hands i could show off as being like unfocused but in his right. case it just feels like he's really connecting these characters through these shifting perspectives i agree completely and i mean it helps i think also the whole fantastical element of his movies that they are so heavily involved with children <laughs> which is hard also because a lot of child actors suck but i think he did a yeah. good job with cast or i mean for at Kronos, at least, casting the little girl, I thought she was excellent. Well, I mean, yeah, throughout his career, obviously, there's like little girl in Pan's Labyrinth, little boy in Devil's Backbone. He knows how to like really capture kids who, especially, don't seem like the most movie star quality cute right. kid. At the same time, they just feel like natural, kind of dis, you know, disassociated kids who feel like they have been kind of like set off into a corner alone for a while. I think he really captures that sort of feeling, especially from a child's perspective. Because I guarantee you, that's totally him. Do you think there's so? No doubt, oh, there's no doubt in my mind that he knows how to cast kids. A, because he is a big kid still. I mean, the way he acts, his house, uh, the stuff he's into, everything. And you know he was the weird kid. There's no question. I think that's why so many of us can really, like, we really adore him. I mean, he's one of the most generally adored filmmakers that I I know by many people. And I don't know if it's because his movies are so amazing or because he's just that lovable. Which is weird for me because I am such a dude, bro. Like, <laughs> I'm set here drinking White Claw and I got Warrant playing on Quiet. <laughs> I love Warrant. <laughs> By the way... So, Al, you kind of intimated that this is not one of your favorite no. Del Toro movies. So why exactly do you feel like this is on the lesser echelon of his films? I can't really put my finger on it. I think I like his more again like over the top fantastical like fairy tale ones and this does have those elements obviously the guy's a fucking vampire but i don't know i just like like the romanticism and like the the glow of his other ones like pan's labyrinth is one of my favorite movies of all time because of that and so crimson peak has the same kind of like what's the word i'm looking for fantastical elements you like the you it, like, the, like the romance of the fantasy. I mean, right. I and this almost feels a little bit colder now. than his other work. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think he really like honed in on his style later in his career. So I, it's not that I don't like Kronos. It's just, I would not like reach for this. If I have like Pan's Labyrinth or Crimson well, Peak on right, my Right, Cause this one feels definitely much more like it's coming off. Like this is keep in mind early nineties horror. That's coming off like the eighties gore craze. He's even said as much as like, this feels kind of like his reaction to that 80s gore craze where it's like, well, let's not desensitize, like, the horror of this over-the-top gore that's going on. I'm going to keep things simple here and also just show the fact that, like, being a vampire can kind of fucking suck in the wrong situation. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> and- <laughs> hey! That's the two-fur. We got two so far. So many puns. This is what <laughs> Allie brings to the show. Um, but I, the, 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 just that energy. But I think with um, with this one in particular, like all of the stuff with the fantastical elements is a lot more sort of grim, and it's very much taking the stance of like right. being a vampire is a terrible situation. Which credit to even at this low a budget, like the makeup effects in this are still phenomenal. When he, the more he becomes decayed, I could not focus because of the gaping hole on his forehead. <laughs> it was so disgusting. 
Mm-hmm. But I guess that's effective. So I'm gonna give it kudos for that. But it was it was a lot. I mean, literally the bit where he's like told like, "Look, peel off your skin." And he peels it off. It's like, oh god, you've just been like peeling all day. Like I was very impressed considering the you know year, and I also, I mean, that's it's just interesting to see that he started like this and he goes crazier and crazier with like practical effects as his career goes on, and I love that. You know what? Maybe that's it. Maybe there's no creature in this movie. The way there are creatures in other movies, and I'm a huge creature person, and so maybe that's why this one isn't like a crazy, crazy favorite. Uh, I'd argue that the ghoul at the end ripping his skin off is a pretty good creature. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely understand. I completely understand what you mean, and but I also think that's one of the reasons why I like this one, and why I like, uh, you know, even Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone, yeah, has the ghost kid, but it's not crazy in your face and they're just really small personal stories and i think that's why i definitely do like them not that i'm saying believe me i love pan's labyrinth i think it's a masterpiece but i also do prefer his uh like sort more of grounded stuff yeah yeah maybe not grounded but just more personal where it's right. not a huge cast it's you know one or two people and they're dealing with elements while they are fantastical are also allegories for very very real problems right i mean it's very intimate in this case yeah and especially it, mm-hmm. it also helps that, yes like, that's a good all point. of like the sort of gore that's here it's like it's much more realistic in a much more disturbing way like the scene where he is in the bathroom and he's essentially just like shooting up yeah, yeah. blood off a bathroom floor good God. It's, 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 oh. it's so right the idea of like this guy is addicted to the idea of just doing this just to survive like th- this is what he finds like he's just like crawling around just trying to like, get any sample of blood or try and like get this like new vein to install this chronos device wherever this is incredibly upsetting this is also one of his funniest movies though like, there's a lot of humor here, and I really, really appreciate that. And I think he does kind of lose that later on, but this is hilarious. Or am I alone? I agree with that, but I think it's more that, like, the humor comes from a more genuine place than it does. I think that's been a problem with some of his American films for me, especially, is the humor feels a bit more like, oh, this is, like, more crowd-pleasing than coming genuinely from the story, necessarily. I think Pacific Rim right. and the first Hellboy in particular suffer from that. Whereas this one has, like, much more dark, sort of... Um, almost like sort of light Peter Jackson slash Sam Raimi inspired humor to some degrees. Like all the stuff with the morticians is actually pretty fucking hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> and Rod Perlman's character basically is all Yeah, very much more of a comedic relief character. Which is crazy because he's, I, I don't know, he's also the villain here, I would say. So it's, it's interesting oh, yeah. because I can't take him seriously, but also he scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, that's also not to undersell the actual, the uncle character, the uh, Claudio Brooke, I believe, is that mm. character, um, who is very unsettling, but without doing a lot. I really like the, all the scenes where he's talking with Federico Lupe, just like, oh, you know, uh, this is the Kronos device, and you wouldn't happen to have it, would you? He happens to have so much intimidation, despite being very much in a dying state. I, I do like that sort of contrast, especially when like Federico Lupe has so much more life in him as a vampire, and contrasted with, like, this guy on a cane who's dying of cancer. He just, like, has all this intimidation over him just because of his, like, crueler spirit. I like that sort of back and forth between those Ooh. two characters. Love that. Love that reading, Thomas. <laughs> Thanks. But that's why he makes the big bucks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I really, I mean... It, I don't mean to sound like I did. I don't like Kronos. I think it's a great movie. I think it's a great 
story and <clears throat> hopefully I get to cover it one day for <laughs> bloodlust if I ever start writing that again. But um I actually had a better time with with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Well, I think that's a good transition point. Uh, let's get into, I guess, those will be your final thoughts, Adam, unless you have anything else to say about Kronos overall. Nope. All right, then, Adam, your final thoughts on Kronos? <laughs> I, I just like Kronos a lot. Like I said, A, you can see where one of the most uh, prolific and original directors working today came from. I think the, the acting in it all around is fantastic, especially from the lead. I think it's a very beautiful relationship story between, you know, a grandfather and his granddaughter, but not even that, it's like an allegory on aging, the acceptance of death, and you're all going to die, you're all going to age, you're all going to die, and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. I just think it's beautifully done, and I think it's just, especially for a first shot, first time out of the gate movie, I mean, you don't get a lot better than this. Very uplifting. Very uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all gonna die, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do really like about it, especially that ending, is the fact that it's not so much about like, oh, it's the inevitable cruelty of death, as much as it's about someone accepting their death, which I think is mm-hmm. a lot more powerful a message. And I think that's what really works about Kronos is it's about someone sort of facing inevitability, initially trying to kind of skirt around it, find a shortcut, and maybe trying to get away from it accidentally kind of stumbling into that but then realizing like this is unnatural this isn't how things are supposed to go i should be able to accept this and having the sort of bittersweet lovely shot ending of just like this big supernatural affair ends with three people in a room one of whom passes on i think it's such a beautiful little thing that gets to a lot of the heart and core of like what i love about dotoro's later movies and i would agree that i like some of the other ones like pan's labyrinth or Shape of Water, or Devil's Backbone is also my favorite a bit more, but this is very underrated, I think, in his filmography, and deserves to be watched by, especially if you are a big Teldoro fan but haven't seen this one, definitely seek it out. It's on Criterion now. It is? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I could get it in a box set with Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> but uh, let's get into a movie that's not on Criterion, I'm guessing for a variety of reasons. It is uh, <laughs> 2011's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Sally, what do you think? We worked really hard to get her ready. This house is unsafe for a child. Sally! Why was that room sealed up? Get her out. I fucking liked this. Okay, a lot. <laughs> Save the hot take for a bit. Let me do some setup. Okay, go but ahead. Uh, this is uh, the 2011 film that he wrote and produced uh, Del Toro along with Matthew Robbins, co-writer with him. It's based on a teleplay from a 70s TV movie um, that changes a lot of things here, and it's uh, from first and as of yet only time director Troy Nixie, who was a comic book artist before doing this. And I actually hadn't seen this before. I'd heard just, like, a lot of people saying, like, oh, it's kind of a lot of Del Toro's tropes, but done not that well. And I decided to um, go ahead and make this the bad feature, especially because we're doing this in honor of uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is coming out the week we're releasing this. And I think not a lot of people even talk about the movies that Del Toro, like, just writes and produces. We know he does it, 
It's just that we don't really talk about those movies. They feel kind of like the redhead stepchilds of his filmography in an unfair way. Because I mean, he's done great job like producing something. It's like my favorite of the ones he hasn't been a director on, but his credit on is probably The Orphanage. Such a beautiful movie. Yeah, I fucking love yes. that movie so much. But I've not seen it. Oh, it's it's a really great one. You haven't seen The Orphanage? Mm-mm. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's a really good one. I would definitely recommend that one. You're not living your best life, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this one is one that's kind of been forgotten, kind of caught to the the wayside. And as you kind of intimated, Allie, uh, you ended up uh, having not seen this before, really digging this one. Why, why did you really dig this one? I don't know. It's because I love. Okay, so more background. I love miniseries, and this felt like it should have been a miniseries. So that's one of the reasons. Also. I I got those Crimson Peak vibes and what you said earlier about how like a lot of people say that this feels like it has those Guillermo del Toroisms in there but not done so well. I kind of like that though because every time I watch a Guillermo del Toro movie, I leave overwhelmed with emotion and I just didn't want to to feel that right now. So it was fun. It was like I mean, I wouldn't call it fun actually. It was a little depressing too, but because it wasn't done as well as Guillermo del Toro could have done it, I think the emotional like overwhelming didn't happen and then that's why i had a better time with this than i expected honestly so it's del toro jr it's the starter pack yeah right it's the <laughs> starter pack so if you want to watch something kind of del toro ish but you don't want to leave like with swollen eyes from crying so much i would go for this i also think the little girl was really good in this at first i couldn't stand her actually i couldn't stand her the whole thing but i think that's the point and i think that that's effective hated the dad and i this movie made me kind of like Katie Holmes, which has never happened. So I got to give her credit. I don't know if I love the creatures, though. Yeah. I mean, the, to all, to briefly set this up, though, I did also watch the original 70s movie, which is very interesting, especially considering the big change they make for this movie is that the character who sees the creatures and isn't believed is actually the wife character, and there is no child character. So it's much more interestingly about sort of like an early example of a gaslighting movie, sort of themed mm. horror movie. In a way, it's actually really fascinating. And I don't think that movie's necessarily great. I could have seen someone redoing it in an interesting way. And I think the problem with this one is by making the main subject the kid, it does, as you mentioned, to your delight, uh, kind of downgrades it to being more of like a junior starter pack Del Toro mm-hmm. movie. Whereas for me, I feel like that kind of robs some of the potential interesting stuff about the sort of aspect of like this person isn't believed about like this, you know, these creatures that are all around. And it feels like I mentioned like a gaslighting thing as opposed to when it's a kid doing it. It feels like you mentioned it's it's fucking goosebumps. <laughs> it's, it's like a fucking yeah, goosebumps story. Yeah. You're totally right. And here's let me just disclaim. I don't think this is a good movie. I don't think it's. <laughs> technically like excellent i just liked it but you're right about that and honestly like it also wasn't like super effective in kind of building up this disbelief it just felt like the parents weren't present really but i don't i don't ever really feel that like my kid is actually insane until they send her to this therapist or whatever and even then i don't feel it as as effectively as it could have been done well, do you agree with these sentiments, Adam? Uh, no, I think this is a steamed pile of boring shit. <laughs> um, I, when I saw, I saw the original as a kid, and it scared me as a child. Now, no, it does not hold up. I agree with you, Thomas. There's interesting things about it, about both movies, about the stories, but I, I'd argue neither of them hold up. And I like to call this, don't be afraid of the dark, Guy Pierce is cashing a paycheck. 
Uh, it, it's just haircut in this is so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Like I don't know if he's wearing a fucking wig or what. Like it's atrocious. And I mean, so this is what now, Thomas, the second movie where we've seen a criminally underused guy Pierce. Yeah, with uh, Iron Man three was the the last one. So like, we're going to find another one, I guarantee you, because it's almost uh, this whole... Well, that's the problem with, like, Guy Pierce's career post-Memento has been a lot of just, like, misusing him in general. Oh, 100%. That's I mean, the biggest had... bummer about him as an actor. He's so cool, and I can name, I think, good use of Guy Pierce on, like, one hand. Yeah, dude, <laughs> Memento, LA Confidential, and The Proposition. There you go. I'm done. <laughs> I mean, also, I'd also say the opening of Hurt Locker and The Rover, which is an underrated one. Makes you wonder if Guy Pierce is actually a good actor if most of the stuff he's in is bad. Well, well, you, you shut that. You have it in the orphanage. What do I know? Right. <laughs> no, I, you know, I like it. Visually, the aesthetics in this are really good. I agree. The creatures all just look the same like there's no differentiating in between them at all for the most part yeah this was i joked on letterbox when i put this up just like this is like the boringest case scenario for a gremlins reboot <laughs> that's pretty accurate <laughs> yeah i don't know if this was supposed to be like funny but it was very funny when those little things started i, don't, I really party. don't think it's supposed to be um, <laughs> but but it is. You're right. You're 100% right. I think they really wanted this to be like another Pan's Labyrinth sort of idea where this kid is in their own fantasy world. Nobody believes them, blah, blah, blah. Of course, it turns out, you know, obviously they're all real and whatever the fuck they're supposed to be. I don't quite know that. I think what he's trying to do is something that I think a lot of filmmakers were interestingly inspired to do after the original Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, because I've heard it's also been an inspiration for, like, Del Toro saw it, and he really loved it as a kid, kind of inspired his works. You can also see bits of, like, say, the original Gremlins in that, in terms oh, of, like, sure. these little tiny creatures, or even a bit of Sam Raimi, because they keep doing, like, the join us little voices and all this other shit. You can <laughs> tell that, like, this clearly inspired a lot of other filmmakers to do things, and this was clearly him trying to, I think, make a gateway horror movie, like Alvin was kind of talking about like this is him wanting like i want to do a starter pack version of one of my movies and have just like this is the one that like young kids can watch and then they're like oh we can graduate up to chronos devil's backbone all these other things i mean but, that might work i don't know that might work for young kids this movie could be effective for young kids again that it's a child you know main protagonist and everything else i don't know i i'm a 36 year old man it doesn't work for me anymore <laughs> but it might work for children i really don't know well thomas you saw the original you watched the original right yes now can you imagine if you were a child seeing that 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 would be terrifying oh yes horrified yeah now, would do you think this would be the same way or no well, I don't know. I think I would, but in a way that would kind of turn me away from the movie. I think that's the big thing watching this is, compared to, like, the original Don't Be Afraid of the Dark TV movie, like, that feels something where it's, like, it's scary, but in a way a kid could at least be still fascinated to keep watching. Versus, I think I would be too scared as a child to even keep watching this movie. I would be kind of turned away in terms of certain things, uh -huh. like, especially the bits where, like, that one groundskeeper dude gets stabbed horribly. feels yeah. just a bit too much. For like or a kids bathtub, starter pack, the bathtub's a little much. A bit, yeah, right. That, that's the thing. Even some of the jump scares, I would say, like the under the bed thing, like under the mm -hmm. covers thing, feels like if I was say around like the intended audience of like you know seven to eleven years old, like watch, a, ooh, it's a spooky movie. I feel like it would be just a bit too much at the same time. So I feel like it's almost a movie that's in between. Doesn't really appease either an adult 
horror audience or a child horror audience either. So it's like too goofy to be scary to an adult and too scary to be appeasing to like a child. It, it doesn't have an yeah, audience really. Exactly. Let's put it this way. Now, before CPS calls me, let me explain all this. <laughs> My soon to be four year old, I was watching in the bedroom with the door closed because I'm like, ah, I'm not going to let her watch this. There's no fucking way. Well, she comes in, I pause it. What are you doing? Daddy, I want to lay in here with you. No, Daddy, I want to watch this movie. No, it's scary. But I'm not going to be scared. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you five seconds. Turned out it was the bathtub scene. Pause it. Are you scared? <laughs> yep. I <laughs> left the room. <laughs> so, I mean, it's effective when it comes to kids. I, I really do think so. But, Thomas, I agree with you. I think the campiness factor of the original as well would be like oh okay like the like i said the gate the one with steven dorf yes yeah it, that feels like a movie that very much inspired the gate right but you watch that as a kid and you're like oh man what is going on you still want to finish it this i think i would have shut it off as a kid mm-hmm. or just like i don't i don't want to watch this anymore i think it would have scared the piss out of me i don't think it's del toro's fault like i think the screenplay is actually like it's pretty solid i just think the direction needed some help well, it feels almost as if Del Toro like laid down solid structural bones for this solid, like you mentioned, kids horror movie to kind of work. But then he kind of got distracted and went off to do Pacific Rim. It feels <laughs> kind of like just like here, let's drop this in your lap, first time director, and see what you can do. And I can also kind of tell that like having I didn't know about him being a comic book artist until after I'd watched the movie, and it does kind of feel like all of the shots are a lot more sort of staged compared to a Del Toro movie. Uh-oh. Like, when you watch a Del Toro movie, it feels like, oh, this is all sort of flowing naturally. You're kind of, like, seeping into the atmosphere. Versus this feels kind of, you know, much more sort of mechanical. And it's sort of... No, I definitely definitely agree. How long... I didn't need to see Guy Pierce's eye ear for more than three seconds, but I got that. (laughs) Like, I'm like, okay, all right. And you know it's coming. That's the thing, too. It's... You knew something was going to come out towards his ear. Or at the end, when he's looking in the... The keyhole. You knew something was going to come out towards his eye. By the way, that guy, talk about perfect timing. Like, he <laughs> yeah. <constantly> <laughs> <stands> <laughs> like, like, good for him. But again, his fucking hair. What so the bad. hell? So bad. <laughs> so bad. And he's such a piece of shit, Dad. A terrible like, dad. I mean, never redeems himself either, if you ask me. No, no I agree. Your child is literally potentially having psychotic breaks. Turns out it's all true, but that's potential. But you're like, I, I don't care. We're having a dinner party. No, what? seriously. Like, even if it wasn't true, Chase so clearly <laughs> needed help. Yeah, there's something wrong here. And then what do you do at the end? You take her back to the fucking house. It's the haircut. Honestly, like, people with good haircuts don't make mistakes. <laughs> <out with it. laughs> I thought my father had a horrible haircut. And he, he was a <laughs> terrible person. <laughs> it's the it's the haircut rule of cinema. Allie's haircut rule of cinema. You need to write a whole book about it. I might look into that. <laughs> I might look into um, but you know, I will agree that like I think one of the few bright spots I would agree is a Katie Holmes, who I'm not usually a fan of either necessarily as an actress. But I think she had the right tone of like awkward, like, hey, I'm kind of a stepmom kind of coming in to do this role, but at the same time she kind of like has some investment, like I I'm kind of weirded out by this, but I, at the same time I am concerned about you. I, I think she handled that pretty well. It's just a shame yeah. that a lot of her stuff is also about, like, hey, let's reveal the origins of these creatures, and, like, oh, they have to feed upon one soul at a particular time, and also, like, they literally go to a fucking library. If I could make a list of top five ugliest film libraries, that would be one of 
them. It was so ugly. It was so ugly that I actually noticed how ugly it was. <laughs> like, I really think it was going for, like, John Wick Library, and it didn't It didn't accomplish that at all. Why was the librarian just chilling? Like, he's, he's just chilling. chilling. Doing, doing his thesis or whatever. And he speaks to the librarian, me. Like, well, okay. What the fuck? And then he's got to walk up nine stairs to go get a set of keys to go down 20 <laughs> stairs. And they set him up like... He's going to be a big, important character, and mm-hmm. he's not really. He would have been a perfect cannon fodder character, where he would come to the house, see the mural, and the creatures would kill him. Oh, and that would have been good. True. My my favorite unintentionally funny character is really that groundskeeper, because it's like he's it's terrible. if it's as if Crazy Ralph like was in his one scene in Friday <laughs> the Thirteenth movie, and then kept coming back like, "Hey guys, you shouldn't go near this particular place in the house." Okay. Hey, BT Dubs, don't go down there in the fucking basement. <laughs> like, he wouldn't what? stop showing up. It's not safe for children. Yeah, that's right. We'll take care of it. But it's not safe for children. And then they're down there. Children shouldn't be down here. Like, dude, fire this asshole. <laughs> when he tells it, when he's yelling at her to run quicker up the stairs. Oh, no. I've never walked in my backyard. And saw some crazed gardener grabbing my kid by the arm and shaking her. I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Get your hands off my kid, freak. Right, he was so chill. He was like, oh, everything okay around here? I'll take it from here. Hold on, I gotta go moose my hair. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the turtleneck effect. Like, I I don't know a man who can wear a turtleneck who doesn't act like that. No man should wear a turtleneck. It's terrible. (laughs) Unless you're Michael Keaton in a Batman movie, you shouldn't. Well, that's true. Michael Keaton can well, ba- well, not that Michael Keaton can wear a turtle. Batman can wear a turtle. Yes. 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 So you just suspend disbelief that that's Batman wearing a turtleneck, and I'm okay with. It. <laughs> uh, if I saw her mom wearing a turtleneck, I'd be like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> As you can tell, we're kind of running out of things to say about. It. Are you afraid of the dark? <laughs> so I guess we'll go into final thoughts then, Allie, As the lone, somewhat defender, <laughs> your final thoughts. I think it's fine. Like, it's totally fine. It's not an abomination. There could be, like, I think this is probably one of the better bad movies you guys have covered on the show. Can we agree with that? No. <laughs> I guess. It's not It's not an, an offensive one. We've covered much more offensive ones on this show. Yes. Right, right. So, you know, like, let's give it some credit for that. Also, he didn't direct it, so that's kind of kind of good news right but i think it's fine if you want it's a good movie to watch in a group because you get to laugh at guy pierce's terrible haircut his bad fashion choice how the hell he managed to wife up katie holmes when he's a terrible like he's just awful he's even awful to her so it's fun it's a fun movie to watch i think i would watch it with like a group of people nobody would understand why i'm laughing but i I highly recommend that I highly recommend that. Also, I tweeted about it, and more people seem to like it than I anticipated. Well, um, to contrast that, Adam, your final thoughts? <laughs> well, okay, let's put it this way. Do I, th- I don't think it's offensively bad in any way. I just think, for me, it's an ultimately forgettable movie. Uh, yeah. I forgot that I've already seen this. <laughs> let's put it that way. Like, I've already saw this movie. I saw it in, when it came, not at the theater, but, like, right when it came out to own. And I completely forgot. So, no, it doesn't rank 
on the worst of the bad movies that we watched. It's definitely not the best. Big ups to Hurricane Heist. But um, <laughs> yeah, Hurricane Heist, y'all, buddy. But it's a right. It's just ultimately like the Street Fighter movie or some of those other ones. are just forgettable. Okay, not as bad as I expect then. Right, it's definitely forgettable, but in a way that, like, I, I will say it, it's appropriate for the show in terms of it shows how truly singular as a visionary Del Toro is. When, like, you kind of yes. rob some of his direct attention, you can kind of see somebody running through the pitfalls of, like, it definitely feels like someone's trying to achieve that kind of spooky atmosphere and that familial sort of relationship, and it just doesn't quite work when you don't have his hands on it more appropriately. I think I agree. It's very forgettable. I'm not going to really remember much about this movie. But at the same time, it does definitely show that, like, if, if nothing else, we should celebrate the ones that he's produced that have a much more distinctive voice and do have some of his influence at the same time. Like, what I'd recommend, it's in the realm of, like, kids would like it, but it's very much not a horror movie. The uh, The Book of Life the movie he produced that's like the wooden animated characters. And it's oh, like, that's cool. Oh, yeah, 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 I like that one. Like, I think he works better whenever he finds somebody who has a distinctive style and he just helps them along with it versus kind of trying to adapt his style to somebody else in this case. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because it's unadaptable. But at the same time, I wouldn't mind somebody taking that original source material. If nothing else, the interest I had in this was exploring the original TV movie. Which isn't great, it's definitely a 70s TV movie, but I would definitely recommend, if you hadn't even heard that this was originally based on something else, that's a curiosity, if you're a horror fan of nothing else, to see the influence it would later have on a lot of other people. And also, it's only, like, 73 minutes long. Yeah, it's not offensively long. <laughs> Whereas this one, even at, like, an hour 40, feels too long. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But on that note, that's the end of our discussion of our two movies. Uh, before we do our picking for our next feature at the end of the episode where we do our two features and picking on that, so stay tuned for that, uh, we will be uh, reading our feedback because at DEDB Pod on our Facebook and Twitter page, we ask you for feedback about, you know, whatever topic we're doing, in this case, Game of Del Toro. So we had some fans write in, um, including James Rodriguez says, uh, it'd be so easy to fill up Del Toro's good suggestions with his directed works, and it's worth praising the man who can win an Oscar for a fish-fucking movie that Troy McClure would adore. Um, his atmospheric and tragic take on Vampire's Chronos is massively underrated amongst his works. Um, his producing work has also delivered some strong showings, such as the unforgettable ghost film The Orphanage, and the imaginative and visually stunning masterwork The Book of Life. Um, as for the flip side, uh, Puss in Boots and Rise of the Guardians are utterly forgettable, and the Hobbit trilogy is an overextended mess that sits alongside the Star Wars prequels and the Fantastic Beast films as franchise extensions, which shouldn't have happened. I disagree, but please continue. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I do disagree somewhat with, like, he did produce some DreamWorks stuff that I did actually like. Like, I like the Rise of the Guardians one. That's the one where it's, like, Santa Claus and the Easter mm -hmm. Bunny and the Tooth Fairy, like, team up as sort of, like, a weird Avengers crew. It's actually kind of a cute kids' fantasy superhero can, story. And can we count The Hobbit? I don't even know that we can count it anymore, really. I mean, it's the weird thing where, like, he's credited as a writer and producer, technically, on yeah. those because he did so much pre-production work. And I mean, you yeah, can see, especially in the first one of the Hobbit movies, you can see a lot of his stylistic stuff, particularly the three trolls feel yeah, distinctly yeah, Del Toro designed. Yeah, I'll give you that. I would die for the Hobbit trilogy, so anyone yeah. who follows me on Twitter will know that. So we'll just move on. We'll carry on. We'll carry on. 
<laughs> well, um, to move on, uh, Brian Stitcher of The Horror Returns says, Best Pan's Labyrinth and the worst is Crimson Peak. <gasps> I'm sorry, Allie. Um, My heart hurts. There's so much. <laughs> There's so much. Uh, get ready. Brian Kane says, uh, Mimic was one of the earliest movies I remember renting from Blockbuster, and it's easily one of my favorite creature features. I remember thinking Crimson Peak was a Tim Burton film. Take a vote, <laughs> you will. <laughs> oh, why do you guys do this to me? <laughs> uh, Lance Langford, also of The Horror Return, says, uh, Best, The Devil's Backbone, Pants Labyrinth. I guess worse would be Pacific Rim or Mimic, but he's got a pretty strong body of work. Okay. Um, and Scott Johnson, former guest, has a great bit here of, clearly Del Toro's greatest work was playing Pappy McPoyle in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, if you haven't seen, um, there is a family of inbred idiots called the McPoyles in the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia crew, and there are several episodes where Del Toro appears as the weird, crazy uncle character. Which, especially the the really, the horror-driven episode that he's in, like, where they go to the wedding yeah. of the McPoyles, yeah. is one of my favorite episodes of that show. It's I have never a... seen that, and you just might have done something. That's that is oh, a yeah, great, great episode. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Love that. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> Even though everyone hates Crimson Peak, I will take your uh, recommendations. <sighs> well, you know, and I will say, to throw some positive words towards Crimson Peak, I think that is one of the underrated Jessica Chastain performances. I think oh, she's yeah. so fucking great. Without well, question. <laughs> Might be her best performance, to be honest. She's fantastic in it. When she goes fucking berserk, it's so good. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree 100%. Thank you for saying something positive to end this on a happy note because I was about to cry. <laughs> uh, well, we did also have some feedback that was in reference to um, our previous episode uh, where we talked about wrestling movies, uh, pe- wrestlers in film. Um, and we had, uh, Lance said, uh, you guys always end up making me think the opposite desired effect. Um, I must see No Holds Barred now. <laughs> he's just gonna fucking love it, too. That Probably. motherfucker, I swear to God, he's gonna end up loving it. I, I just, I really just, God, fuck you, Lance. Fuck you, man. The, the tension between these two. Um, whenever he comes well, back it's, on, it's, it's, just it's be... definitely sexual, palpable tension. <laughs> For sure. Um, Scott Johnson said, uh, Pain and Gain, I stand by, is one of the most underrated films of this last decade, and is Michael Bay's best. Um, if you want a great discussion on why it's so good, check out Double Edge Double Bill. Of course, we appreciate <laughs> that, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Um, and Dave West of uh, the Needless Things podcast said, uh, we did a commentary on the Needless Things podcast of No Holds Barred. It holds up even worse than I remembered. Oh. Yep, I'm right there with him. <laughs> Are you aware of the No Holds Barred, Allie, what this is? I am a huge wrestling fan. So, yes. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, like, um, I've actually never seen it, but I've, I've heard of it. Don't Who? just don't. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Chief among them, Hulk Hogan stars in it. Not a fan of me. No, no, I, I'm, I'm so shocked. Why would you not be a fan? There's, there's no way <laughs> you couldn't be. Um, but what would you say is one of the better examples of a wrestler as an actor? In um, I really think that John Cena is a great actor. <laughs> I will like go. I really do think he's a great actor. I also really like The Miz. Oh. In, you know, on sequels of my podcast, we did an episode on the Marine Six. He's actually very good on that. They Live is a like perfect example of one of the best movies that stars a wrestlers maybe ever. So 
I, I don't think, I mean, I think wrestlers are actors first and foremost. Sorry if I offend anyone with that, but if a wrestler can't act, then he's not going to be like successful. So I'm not ever surprised when there's like a really good movie that stars a really good wrestler. Are you saying it's not real, Hallie? <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Next thing I... you know, Santa's not going to be in the picture, Alec. Come on. <laughs> For real. Oh. Do you mean to say Vince McMahon really didn't get blown up in a limo? Is that what you're telling me? Are you telling me that there's just so much I could say right now that I don't even know where to start, to be honest. <laughs> Point is, I don't want to disrespect wrestlers because I know it's a lot of work, but yes. Yes, Thomas, I'm so sorry that you found out this way. Wrestling is fake. I'm going to pray to my god the Easter Bunny and cry. <laughs> I'm still a pretty big fan of wrestling. I fell off a little bit, but... Uh, I mean, I tend to agree with you a little bit, but I, I do think Thomas and I both said, if I remember right, that we both think John Cena has potential. He's getting better as he's doing more and more. Uh, although this new Firefighters movie that's coming out with him and it looks so horrible. I mean, it's like it's a dumb kids movie. Yeah, it's just... Uh, I, but, uh, I think The Rock is pretty good, too. He just plays The Rock, though, so I can't yeah. really... But Roddy Piper, I think, is probably the best oh, yeah. uh, use of a wrestler in a movie, I think, ever. I really do. I think. agree. I agree. Finally, we agree. <laughs> and just briefly, uh, the last bit of feedback we have, uh, Desmond Alexander Peel says, uh, Sentient Hot Dog is the most amazing way to describe Hulk Hogan, Adam Thomas, and Thomas Mariani. <laughs> you guys had me rolling. Like a hot dog. Hey! <laughs> the third one. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, he's a, yeah. I mean, that's an apt description, though. It really is. And then his fucking horrible mustache and hair could be the mustard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, but we want to thank you all for that feedback. We also want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our show. Uh, she accepts commissions at fiverr with two rs.com slash ee scarda. And of course, we want to thank Miss. Alejandra Gonzalez here. Thank you for coming on the show. Please plug you. away. You have so much to plug. plug. I, I do have a lot to plug. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at sick underscore underscore six six. You can read my columns over at Talk Film Society. I write about vampires. It's called Bloodlust and it's very gay. And then um, you can listen to me hate my life and my co-hosts on sequels S-E-E-Q-U-E-L-S wherever you guys listen to your podcast. We cover direct-to-video sequels I don't know why I ever agreed to being on that podcast. It's because yeah, I love Shaq awesome. and Sarah so much. <laughs> that was a joke. It's because they make my life a living hell by picking the worst movies ever made. So, but it's fine. We have a fun time over there. And yeah, thank you for having me on, you guys. This was a lot of fun. I'm very glad I got to talk Guillermo del Toro. Yes. And of course, uh, we've had previous uh, co-hosts, uh, Shaquille and Sarah Sorrentino on our show as well. So thank you for helping us finish the trifecta. I mean, you came with your insights and your incredibly interesting takes, but this was really more of just like a mantelpiece thing. For sure. Yeah. That's fine, that's fine. I, uh, I'm i used to it. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, we had to check a box. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, thanks for coming on. You're, you're more than welcome to come back on anytime. 
Thank you. I would love to. For sure. And before we uh, do our pick-in for the next time, just a few bits of housekeeping. Like we said, find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, and our email is at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, uh, all spelled out. Or you can find me on my own individual account at not the Who's Tommy, um, where I do my tweeting and such, and I also write reviews at marianitomas.wordpress.com. And... It's time I started promoting this now because uh, we're in August now, and uh, I will be at the end of August through Labor Day at Dragon Con uh, once again. I'll be doing panels for the horror and urban fantasy tracks. Um, the schedule's TBD at the moment, but I know we'll all be doing stuff about Good Omens, uh, Nosferatu. Um, I know there's a Blair Witch panel rumored around, and the one I'm most anticipating is the Horror of Scooby-Doo, which I'm quite <laughs> excited to be doing. So awesome. That is awesome. Yes, but that'll be Labor Day weekend, and you can find Adam in the boiler trying to drag people down, right? Uh, I mean, not, like, physically, but, like, emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, That's much better. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> Global warming. Bummer, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, for more lovable takes like that, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever different platform we're on we're on spotify stitcher youtube all sorts of places and uh, make sure to rate review or at least share us around because uh, that gets more people to listen to the show yes please uh, and now it's time for the end of the show where we do our picking for next week so a bit of a transition point is that uh, del toro's next movie is nightmare alley which is a remake of an old 40s film noir movie and one of the rumored people who's going to be in that movie apparently is one Kate Blanchett. We are doing an episode about her. It's the first time we've covered an actress as a topic on the show, and we're really excited to do it because she's got that uh, Where'd You Go Bernadette movie coming out, the Richard Linklater film. How do you feel about that? I can't really uh, make up my mind yet. I think the thing I, is, I think that movie's being weirdly advertised because everything I've heard is that she literally goes missing, but it's advertised like a wacky family comedy. So I'm yeah. a bit concerned as to, like, where where, where are we going to land on this? I'm curious because Linklater, like, he's another guy who hasn't had, like, a lot of, you know, duds in his filmography. But um, I'm a bit dubious based on, I think they're marketing it in a way that's hiding something. Good or bad. Agreed. I agree. I agree. Uh, to celebrate her in general and her illustrious career, um, I have the two good picks and Adam has the two bad picks. And for those of you who might be new, we assign a number between 1 and 10 to both our picks for whether good or bad. And usually each of us would pick a number between 1 and 10 for the opposite's choices. But when we have a guest like Allie, uh, we go ahead and give her the chance to throw the dart at which one would end up being picked. So for my two good choices, Allie, number between 1 and 10. Mm, six. Okay. At number six, right on the dot, I have the very understated action film Hannah from 2011. Okay. Was uh, not hoping for that, but that's okay. I haven't seen that since it came out. I'm excited to revisit that one, actually. Yes. And then at number one, um, I had a movie that was really beloved at the Oscar time. It kind of feels like it's been forgotten. I would hope more people would see it. Uh, 2015's Carol. So beautiful. That's what I was yeah. hoping for. Such a great movie. I have not seen that one. So I guess you I have to watch have that. permission to change my number and select one. No, I don't I'll watch it. I'll watch it. <laughs> Nobody gets to do that, damn it. <laughs> and now for his two bad picks, Allie, number two, one. Okay, ten. let's do three. At number two, I have Ocean's Eight. 
<laughs> a movie I actually kind of liked. Honestly, me too. I really, yeah. really liked Ocean's Eight. This will be interesting because I definitely did not. Uh, at number nine, <laughs> it had Bandits with Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, that's Ooh. one of her early ones. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was a Comedy Central middle of the weekend play that I remember watching like five minutes of and then always yeah, it's, changing the channel. <laughs> it's hot. Uh, but, okay. Well, uh, uh, Hannah and Ocean's 8. Woohoo! Interesting double bill. <laughs> thank you for picking Allie and thank you for being on once again. Thank you for having me. Yes, and on that note, let us crawl back into the depths. I missed it last week. Long live the giant condor. I'm not missing yeah. that shit again. Sure. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>